BCF in SG. Um, once again, we are a group of young Christians in Singapore exploring the LBCF and how it relates to us in our own Christian pilgrimage in Singapore itself. Today, um, there's only one of them who joined me, uh, sadly, Christopher and Hello. Chris. And Hi. David isn't available to join us today and Joanna will be dropping in later. It's late at night as for this recording, so uh, everyone is busy. And yeah, we're recording this late at night. It's almost 9.30 as we are recording this. It's quite late for Ooh. recording. But nonetheless, I think we are, which is quite fun. I think um, we all enjoy this series so far, so we shall continue the discussion uh, right now in the LBCF. So today, um, as promised, last week we were unable to cover the canon of scripture, the 66 books of scriptures and also the Apocrypha. So to fill it up, uh, today we are going to go through, uh, you know, discuss a bit about how the canon came about, you know, discuss a bit about some issues that a lot of people might have against the canon of scriptures. And also we will talk a bit more about Apocrypha, you know, as Protestants, how should we view Apocrypha and, you know, how, how should we use Apocrypha in, in some cases also. So as we start, um, I think it's, it's good to first discuss about how Singaporeans in general, I think uh, Chris will agree with me, how Singapore in general, how we view the canon of scripture. I think uh, I have similar consensus with Chris uh, in the sense that, you know, I myself, when I first started doing research about canon, I had never really thought about it. Before I started research on the canon, I haven't really had much thought about the canon of scripture itself. Um, many of us, we are not concerned with how the 66 book of the Bible came to be. Many of us, we just imagine that the Bible popped up out of nowhere after uh, John wrote Revelation. But I think throughout the church history, we can see that there is a so-called, it's a constant debate. You know, there's a constant debate starting from the early church all the way to the 5th century that ultimately they came together and say that these are the scriptures that we affirm that are inspired by God and the rest we do not agree. So I think I have that kind of experience. And when I look around Christians, you know, in our in our circles today, they are not concerned with it. They don't ask questions about it. They are just like, okay, I'm willing to accept the scripture as it is. And so yeah, a lot of times there comes the issue. Alright. So I don't know. So Chris, what about you? What was your what's your take on this? Like how Singaporeans and even yourself, how do you think um, the canon? How do you see the canon? Yeah, so, um, yeah, hi guys, once again. Uh, I think this is a very huge topic and one that is severely overlooked, if I were to be honest. And if I were to be even more honest, I would have to agree with what Isaac just said, that even for myself, um, really for a lot of my Christian life, for the vast majority of my Christian life, I have ignored studying this topic in depth. One of the reasons why is because I do not think it's a battle that we experience today. I think that this battle has already been fought and won. Okay, thanks be to God, this battle has already been won. Um, and at most, at most, you have some battles, not very big scale, I would say, that uh, some skeptics might bring up to the table regarding this topic. You know, how was the Bible formed? Uh, how did our 66 books come together from the Bible that we have in our hands and in our phones and in our laptops. Uh, I think I, for one, I take this, I, I really took this for granted 
I really approach this with, you could say, a blind faith. You know, saying that, yeah, I trust God, yes. Uh, no, this is not a battle that I really have to fight. So, I do not really need to dedicate my time into studying this. So, I, I have to admit that I was guilty of being part of the people who neglected this topic. But I can say that after researching this more in depth, it has given me a much larger appreciation of God himself. Not, not even the wisdom of man in history, but really fundamentally is the wisdom of God. Okay? We'll talk about that soon. Hmm. Yeah, so as we start, you know, when we look at the London Baptist Confession of Faith, we see that the second paragraph itself talks about the books. Right, we must start off by affirming the books itself, first of all. So we have 39 uh, Old Testament books for the Protestants, which I'll get into the Apocrypha, which we will see that there are more than 39 uh, books for the Catholics and for the Orthodox. And for the New Testament itself, we have 27 books. So added up together, we have 66 books of the scriptures we affirm and we hold on to say that these are inspired words of God. So, uh, so let us start off by kicking off with, you know, what is canon, Chris? You know, what's your, I think, as, as we discussed first of all, what is the meaning of canon? The first thing that we imagine when we talk about the word canon is that big gun that we shoot, shoot ammunition out of, a bomb out of it. Or another thing that we imagine is the camera, <laughs> Canon Dios. Right, <laughs> right. So, so yeah. Chris, what what is a Canon? What do you what is a, what's your understanding of a Canon? Yeah, I I think before I give my take on what I think Canon means, mm. I, I think it's really so important that we have a right definition because mm. in history, the battles that were fought were really mainly due to differing definitions of the Canon. Yeah, you have different scholars, different archaeologists, different researchers that all define the word canon differently. And that's a problem because uh, it's not a matter of evidence because everyone is looking at the same evidence. But it's really the interpretation of that evidence that differs. And I think that is where we must tackle, that is where we must start. Okay? So, yes, to summarize uh, what we are really going through now, in what Isaac and I are going through is really how did our six books get together to form the Bible? How, uh, yeah, was it really the wisdom of men that compiled these books, or was it really something else altogether? Okay, so let me define what canon is. Okay, uh, let me give three definitions very quickly. The first definition that a lot of people take to as to what the canon is is that the New Testament canon is a fixed final and closed list. Wait, wait sorry, okay. sorry there. Wait, New Testament or Old Testament or both? Sorry, uh, we are focusing on the New Testament because okay. I think for the Old Testament, mm. at least we know that the first century Jews, they had the Torah and the Tanakh. Okay, basically the law and the prophets. Mm. And, the, and the first century Jews did not really have any disagreement. I think everyone of them studied the same books. The same mm. Old Testament books that we study today. So that's not really an issue. I think for today, we'll be focusing a lot more on the New Testament canon. Sure. Okay. Go ahead. So, as I was saying, first definition of the canon, New Testament canon, is that it is a fixed, final, and closed list. Basically, what that means is that the canon is the final version of all those books compiled together. So once the dust has been settled, once all the arguments are over, that final list that you have is the canon. 
Okay, so that's definition number one. Some positives of, for that definition is that it, it shows that this canon did not come about spontaneously. You know, I mean, there are some good things that can come about from this definition. One of them is that it took some time. You know, this doesn't, this, this canon didn't come out of nowhere. People took time. People were meticulous. People uh, were not too quick in their judgments. And yeah, they compiled it pretty nicely. Uh, but however, however, there are some negatives as well. A negative to this definition is that it gives the impression that the church was in the dark before the 4th century. Because with this definition, you would only have a canon in the 4th century, mm. historically speaking. And a negative implication of this definition simply shows and implies that the church was lost. The church did not really know what to read. The church didn't really know what to study before the 4th century. Right? And we know that actually, or we were seeing that historically speaking, that is really not true. Yeah, that is really not true. So wait, Chris, um, stop you there. Like, yeah. So, you know, when we talk about early church, like before the 4th century, before we we have the so-called the fixed canon, and you put it as that, the, the, the fixed New uh, New Testament. We, we, you know, what, do you want to tell us a bit about how church might have operated, you know? in the early church before the canon was set up? What kind of scriptures might they be using? What kind of literature might they be using to teach the yeah, so, church members? Uh, I, I mean, I, I was going to touch on that. Oh, alright, alright. I'm so sorry. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Okay, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll quickly go through the three definitions of canon mm. and like, and how, uh, what my thoughts are on all those three definitions. Should it, should it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so as I was saying, the first, this first definition that the canon is a finalized product mm. A negative implication uh, would also be that the canon only exists because the church did something. Mm. Okay, let me say that again. Another negative implication of this definition that the canon was a finalized product is that the canon was only in existence because the church did something. Okay, now I'll, I'll talk a bit more about why that is a negative implication a little bit later. Okay. For now, let me go to definition number two. Definition number two is that uh, you will have a canon. The canon is when you see books of the New Testament being used as scripture by Christians. Okay, this is what we call a functional definition of a canon, in that there's a canon when Christians are using it. They're mm -hmm. referring to it as scripture. Okay? With this definition, you would conclude that there was the canon in the second century. You see, it, really, it already differs from the first definition, which would conclude that you only had a canon in the 4th century. Mm -hmm. With this one, you would have to say that as early as the 2nd century, or even earlier than that, you already have a canon, because people were already using it as scripture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So some positives of this is that uh, it reminds us that before the 4th century, there was a core collection of New Testament books that were already functioning as scripture. Mm -hmm. This also tells us of how advanced the Christian canon already was at such an early date. You know, for most of the New Testament that we have today, historically speaking, most of the books were not even in debate at all. Mm. People did not really argue over which books were canon and which books were not. Okay, um, most of the debates only came from the smaller books that we have today, such as Second Peter, Second John, Third John, Jude, Revelation. You know, <laughs> 
no, no, no. Actually, revelation was not in our argument. Revelation was not in our argument. Regulations uh, itself is unique also. I mean, that's the... That's the, the, the argument for Revelation is more on the date. Which yeah, the date. Yes, 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 yes. That's not really the focus of oh, yeah. today's topic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talking, so uh, you are more on the authority... Oh, sorry, the authorship when it sense, is it? Or you're... Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, on, that's on, the second... Yeah, yeah. Okay. So mm. those are the positives. Those are the positives of this second definition. Some negatives, okay, um, such as... Uh, or rather, some of the negatives for the second definition are quite similar to the first definition in that, again, it is dependent on man. The canon, the existence of the canon was dependent on man. Remember, the first definition... The canon was dependent on the church for it to exist. This second definition is dependent on people to be using it in order for it to exist. Okay. Uh, I hope you're following with me so far. Uh, this definition does not address what we call, okay, please bear with me, the ontology of canon. Okay. Now that's a big word. What does yes. that word even mean? Well, what we are addressing is what is scripture, or rather what is canon, in and of itself. What is the canon even if no one came across it? What would the canon what is the canon even if no one studied it, even if no one discovered it, would it still be the word of God? Okay, that's what we're addressing. The canon in and of itself, without any external influence. Okay? Now uh, the, the two definitions that I quickly went through shows that the church still had something to do in order for the canon to be the canon. Okay, this sounds as if the books of the New Testament became canon. And this implies that before the church did anything, they were not canon. Okay? Before they were nothing, and then when the church said, okay, we should have these books as the word of God, and then they became the word of God. Can you see what I'm getting at? I hope you see what I'm getting at. Okay? Now, uh, what, what I want to explain with the third definition Okay, is that these books were actually canon in and of itself simply due to the virtue of the fact that God gave them to his church. Okay, now that's where I will come into the third definition. And the third definition of canon is the ontological definition of the canon. So I've briefly explained what the word ontology is. It's basically to talk about what canon is in and of itself, the, be the being of canon. And this definition looks at the canon from God's perspective. The first two definitions focus more on man's perspective of the canon. But I think the where the third definition shines the most is that it, it sees it from God's perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, leaving aside how people treated the canon, leaving aside how people uh, responded to the canon, we want to acknowledge, first and foremost, theologically, okay, we want to affirm theologically that if God gave these books and that he inspired these books and his intent was that these were the authoritative books that would guide his church and that there's something we can say that's true about them before anyone even knew they existed. Okay, so uh, yeah, I, I hope you're still following me. In essence, we can say that there was a canon as soon as God gave those books. As soon as those books were finished being penned down, they are the word of God. Okay, it doesn't matter what other people say, doesn't matter what other people think, in and of itself, those books are the word of God. Now, if we went by this definition, we would say that there was already as the first century, as soon as they were written in the first century, because fun fact, all New Testament books 
in our Bible were penned in the first century, nothing beyond that. The first hundred, about first hundred years, yes. The first hundred years of yeah. human, of, of first hundred AD. La. Yeah, first hundred okay. AD. <laughs> 180, yeah, yeah. 180, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, if you guys know about this Presbyterian minister, called B.B. Warfield, he used this definition of the canon. He said that the canon of the New Testament was completed when the last authoritative book was given to any church by the apostles. Mm-hmm. And th- that was when John finished writing the book of the Apocalypse, or what we call the book of Revelation. Revelations. So B.B. Warfield is saying that the canon was finished once the book of Revelation was finished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is why theology defines your definition of canon. Now, I, I know I've been talking a lot, but please hear me out for another minute. Now, how do these three definitions go together? Now, to combine, because there is there are good things we can take away from all three definitions. There are some negative implications if you just if you were to just stick to the first two, but there are some good in all three, and here's how they all fit together. Now we know that the canon did not happen instant instantaneously, and long before the fourth century, there was already a core collection of books that were established, that were agreed on, and that were already in use by the Christians as scripture. And we know that these books, in and of themselves, they already have a virtue simply due to the fact that God gave them to his church. Yeah. So now you start to see a cohesiveness in all of the books of the New Testament. You see how God gave his collective, collective um, set of books for his church, you know, his inspired books. And uh, you know, when God gave his inspiration that led to the penning down of those books, you, you had a canon in a sense, then, then the church, um, sorry, and, and his church started using those scriptures as you know, part of their study, part of their Christian life. And in a sense, you had a canon then. And eventually, finally, the church sat down, the dust was settled, he said, this, these set of books are the words of God. And that's when the 4th century, right, when the councils sat together and you could say formed the whole Bible, then you had a canon in a sense, then. So, uh, you, you, you can see that the canon is like a process. The canon was not just some uh, magic. instantaneous thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not some magic trick. Magic. You know, there was a process to it. Uh, and that rather than focusing on the date of canon, I think we should rather focus on which stage of the canon you know, were we at. Uh, and yeah, these three definitions fit together in a very complementary manner and we see the history of it and we see how theology feeds how we look into this. We can talk a little bit more about that later, mm. more about how theology fits our, how we look at the canon. Mm. Now, uh, yeah, because really what we start with, the presuppositions, the assumptions that we start with will really lead to how we um, interpret these historical evidences. Okay, if we are if we are going to talk about them. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's all, all for right. me for now. Thank you very much, Chris. Well, that's uh, that was well, you just expounded on the definition of canon. Uh, thank you very much on that. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. Basically, as Christians, well, when we start looking at scriptures, when we start this kind of discussion about canon, there is that assumption, there is that need for that assertion of scriptures itself, of the canon itself. Um, as Chris said, uh, canon itself is a process. It did not just pop out of nowhere. I think this is something for us, uh, oftentimes we forget as Christians. Uh, I'm not sure if Chris, you ever run into this kind of problem, but you know, sometimes Christians, we don't really 
we don't really catch the dates of scriptures of writing as much as you know sometimes we should um as you said you know we shouldn't focus on that but yeah at the same time there is also an importance of it you know sometimes people will question uh why do i say that is important because sometimes like when we look at for example the gospels uh as you go through the gospel of john you know john is written very late you know there is the process of john really building up uh theology you know in that sense uh it was formed after most of paul's letters are written also so that dating itself sort of shows us and you know in a way that why john was so-called more capable of expressing the deity of christ much more than the other gospels themselves could have as in the author themselves could have expressed uh, more explicitly in that sense so yeah as you mentioned before the process of canon canonization uh, if i can call it that where you know the process of church gather uh, church people gathering and affirm the scriptures of it okay so i think as we move on um one thing that i want to sort of talk discuss a bit more you know what what are, what are the okay we have thought about how people have so-called argue about what should be included that is now included what about you know books that might not be accepted i think one of the most common books that people like to talk about today is the gospel of thomas uh, i'm not so sure why gospel of thomas specifically but i have heard many of christians talking about the gospel of thomas so why might be why okay first of all why is it not included uh and why are the sort of other gospels are not included also second of all what is the what might what is the yeah what, what what might be the historical reason for it yeah if you can share a bit with us chris on that yeah i i think a very important point that we must also touch on on discussing this topic is how can we know which books were really from God? Okay, which mm. books are divinely inspired versus those that are not? Mm. Okay, and I think um, there are a total of three things, uh, three ways we can use to discern for ourselves and, uh, and derive to the correct answer on our own without being too dependent on any teacher uh, as we approach this issue. Because mm. I, I think what I hope for us to take away from this is that we will know how to differentiate the true books of the Bible which is thank God the ones that we have versus other Gnostic Gospels such as the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, wait. Let me stop you there. Yeah. Let's before we continue, you call it the Gnostic Gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is Gnostic? <laughs> I what, mean, uh, what is Gnosticism? I, I, I think okay. That that's another big topic altogether. Maybe I think maybe Isaac can elaborate a bit more <laughs> after. But, but in, sure. in a nutshell, in a, in a nutshell, to keep it simple, okay, Gnosticism is a heresy, it's a false teaching of Christianity, very rampant in even the first century, uh, when you're talking about, I think the book of First John addresses Gnosticism yeah, quite yeah, a bit, yeah, and basically what that means is that you have a group of people, Gnostics as we call them, who always claim to have this hidden secret knowledge. Okay, all of you Christians have your supposed revelation from God, right? Well, look at me, I have more. I have this hidden secret knowledge that in extra revelation that God has given to me, you know, which actually really isn't. <laughs> it really isn't God-given revelation, but really just man-made concoctions. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I missed anything there, but to me, that's how I would summarize what Gnosticism is. It's like mm. hidden knowledge. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that was one issue that we have in the early church, you know, when we talk about the heresies of the early church, one thing that comes to mind is Gnosticism. Um, the rules of Gnosticism itself is actually quite rooted in the foundation of Greco-Roman philosophy. Uh, why do they say that there is a secret knowledge? Because they have they have an understanding of uh, the flesh being much worse than the spirit, in the way that the spirit is almost divine-like, but is corrupted because of the flesh that the spirit dwells in. So the vehicle is bad, but the person driving the vehicle is good. So, mm, mm. you know, because of that, then uh, well, the whole idea of secret knowledge come out because physical matter itself is bad. So you can't have anything mm. good out of it. So, well, they started asserting. Um, yeah, it's a movement lah, in that sense. You can take it as a movement, like modern day movement <laughs> where we will call modern, a lot of modern day movement heretical in a very similar manner um, back in those days. And there is this kind of movement going around that spread this kind of heresy. Alright, sorry yeah. to cut you off there. Uh, so, you know, going back to the Gnostic Gospel, uh, the Gospel yeah. of Tom, according to Thomas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think one thing we can look at, uh, something that I mentioned earlier was that all the books in our New Testament, in the Bible, all 27 books, they were written in the first century. Now that's very key. Now that's very key because it does play a part in giving the credibility to the authors because they were living in the same generation as the witnesses of Jesus. They might have been witnesses of Jesus themselves, right? And something you must know about all these Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Mary, okay, there's a lot of different kinds. They were all written after that. Okay, they were all written second century, much later than the first century. And I think that already should raise some eyebrows, okay? And why, why was it named Gospel of Thomas? Why why is it given all these names, some of the names of the disciples? I mean, of course, you had, I'm sure you had all kinds of people back then who wanted to gain traction, to gain attention to themselves, yeah, to their writings. Yeah, 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 gain attention to their writings. And they wouldn't call their writings Gospel of Paul. Yeah, they would, <laughs> you know. So it's really no surprise that they would name their writings in this, this kind of manners. Now, uh, I, I think a very key factor in determining which books of the Bible are really apostle authorized, okay, if I want to put it that way, is to really look at how it's written. Because a question that some people might ask is, did the New Testament writers know they were writing scripture? And the answer to that is absolutely. They absolutely knew that they were writing authoritative words. Now, some examples, some examples. Um, you have, okay, maybe Paul. Okay, let, let, let me just quickly refer to Paul. That there, there, There's a case to be made for every author to, to say that they knew uh, that they were writing authoritative scripture. Okay, let me look at Paul. Or rather, actually, let me look at Peter first. Because in Second Peter, I believe it's chapter 3, but Second Peter, he actually calls the words of Paul scripture. scriptures. Okay, Peter says that there are some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. And the, a lot of people have risen up to twist Paul's word as they do the other scriptures. Okay, so Peter actually calls Paul's words, Paul's writings, scripture. Now that's very important. In 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul actually tells the church that you have received what we have said to you uh, as the word of God. Okay, you have received wholeheartedly. Yeah, let me try and find the exact text. Okay, yeah, uh, second, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Mm. So Paul here says that what you heard from people like me, a human, were actually not my words. Mm-hmm. What you have received from me is really the word of God. Okay, so, so Paul was not just writing as a piece of good advice or as like a love letter to his friend. No, Paul was intentionally writing with authority, a pe- uh, apostolic authority. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's also, uh, that's also evident in many of his introductions to yep. in his letter. He always called himself an apostle. An apostle of Christ. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cases can be made for all the authors, but I think we, will, we don't have a lot of time. Mm. But in essence, in essence, these are some tools that we can refer to to, to kind of discern which books are from God and which books are not. Now, another very important thing, and I'll get to why the Gospel of Thomas, Thomas is not divinely inspired. Okay, another very crucial thing we must think about is that all revelation, all supposed revelation, must be consistent with previous revealed revelation. Previously revealed revelation. So whatever people may claim to be the New Testament, it must be consistent with what was already revealed. In this case, the Old Testament, right? God's previous revelation. Let me get to the Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas, you can read it for yourselves. Okay, it's quite a chunk. But some of the things that it teaches is that part of it talks about how we are not needed to be saved from our sins. We don't have to be saved from our sins. You know, we are inherently good people. Okay, we can actually save ourselves through attaining this higher knowledge. Now, now, now remember, Gnosticism, we talked about that. And that's exactly what Gospel yeah. of Thomas explicitly talks about. It says that we can, we can save ourselves uh, just by having this higher knowledge. Whatever that is, I mean, I have no idea, man. Ask the author of the Gospel. Is <laughs> the author yeah. Thomas? Yeah, yeah. Is the Thomas? Sorry, is the no. author Thomas? Okay, good. No, <laughs> the actual Thomas, because it was the, if it was written by the actual Thomas, it would be perfectly consistent with what all the other apostles have to say. Okay. Anyway, some other things about the Gospel of Thomas. The Jesus in there, the so-called Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas, talks about not his own divinity, but rather our divinity. Like what? Questions, questions. The Gospel of Thomas... The, the Jesus talk in the Gospel of Thomas does not talk about his own divinity. He talks about mankind's divinity. What? Okay, what so yeah, some strange <laughs> things right there. Uh, and it also teaches how we as human beings can become just like God. Mm. Yeah, I really hope that raises a lot of red flags. Being a so-called gospel, being a so-called letter written by a so-called apostle, I hope you can see for yourself that, that all of that is inconsistent with what the four gospels have the, the four gospels in our Bible have to say. Mm-hmm. So it's really about consistency. Do these letters teach the same thing or do they teach things that are contradictory to books that were previously reviewed? Okay? And yeah, and I, I think before before I end off uh, this part, mm. I, I think it's quite cool to consider how the Bible that we have is written by 14 different authors, people who lived in totally different timelines, generations, who did not even know each other, but they all wrote a coherent and consistent testimony of the God of the Bible. Yeah, God I think that's really cool. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> you can open a lot of can of worms there of questions such as, you know, how how do you say that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God is the same? I think this is a very interesting, this is a very common question today. I don't know. It's just a different topic. Yeah, I know, it's, a different, <laughs> you know, it's definitely a different topic. It's just that suddenly this came to my mind. When you talk about consistency of scriptures, a lot of people raises that question. I, I don't know why, but I always hear that question. How do you explain how the Old Testament God and the New Testament God mm. are the same? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, 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 yeah. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. What are you saying? Another thing just came to my mind is that another way that we know which books are should be in the New Testament is that I mean you will see in, in the New Testament that we have, the authors really love to quote from the Old Testament. Oh yes, yes. You will see the apostles especially quoting from previous revealed scripture. To, and that's another way which they show that whatever I'm saying now is consistent with what was previously revealed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes we even call the New Testament, sometimes I like to joke that the New Testament is almost like a commentary of the Old Testament. <laughs> it's to yeah. explain to yeah, us yeah. the, the yeah. Old Testament, what is he trying to say? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that, that's very insightful for us to to think a bit about, more about our the New Testament. You know, don't just imagine it to be a simple book that just fall flaw from the sky and then just bump to us. But really, there is a lot of things that goes into to so-called bring the New Testament to life by God in the sense that he didn't just use one person to write the whole New Testament. Yes, though we have a lot of Paul's writing in the New Testament, but it's not every book in the New Testament is written by Paul. So yeah, yeah. this is something it's something that's very insightful for us. Okay, um, I don't know how much time we have left. But I want to go on to... Uh, so, you know, we have that. We have that, that affirmation, um, that affirmation of the New Testament really. And and uh, but on but on the other hand, you know, we have the New Testament with the old. So uh, I I think we are done with the New Testament, right? Regarding the canon of New Testament. Are well, we, are um, we? if you think so, hopefully your listeners hopefully. will be convinced. Yep, yeah. Hopefully, you guys are convinced. <laughs> okay, we move yeah, on to the, the Old Testament itself. Okay, when we are talking about canon, usually we refer to both the old and the new. We don't separate them. But in, in this case of discussion, um. You know, when we look at the paragraph number three of the LBCF chapter one, it talks about the books commonly called Apocrypha not being of divine inspiration and no part of the canon or the rule of the scriptures. I, know, I wanted to discuss a bit more of the Apocrypha now. You know, we talk about the New Testament. The New Testament itself, first of all, uh, to note is that in all Christian traditions, be it Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, whichever Orthodox you are, all of us affirm the same New Testament. The New Testament does not deviate among the different traditions. Don't have Gospel of Thomas is not in the New Testament of the Catholic Bible. I realize that some of the Protestant Christians make this mistake of assuming that Apocrypha includes the gospel, uh, the Gnostic Gospels. So they think that oh, the Catholic Bible have this extra New Testament book. But I just want to carry out that no that's not true orthodox christians also don't have other new testament book the new testament is the same throughout all uh traditions is affirmed okay so let's go to the apocrypha itself now uh when we talk about the apocrypha itself we are referring to the extra books of the old testament uh su- surprisingly by a lot of people you know we talk about the old testament uh extra books that's what christian call it um there's a of an issue on that uh, when it comes to discussion of faith also uh, recently I have a conversation with one of 
uh, one of the sisters in Christ. Um, we were discussing about, you know, a Catholic approaching her, and sort of like talking to her about how Catholicism might be more true, simply because they have more books. <laughs> I, I don't know why, uh, but Chris, have you ever met this before? Like, like Catholics coming up to you and giving you the reason that we might be more true because we have more books, we have more solid ground. Have you ever been approached like that before? Uh, that's not the argument that I normally hear. I mean, I, I, I've heard that before, but yeah. at least from, from my experience, Catholics say more of that they think that they are right simply because they are the church that Jesus oh. Christ originally established. That's yeah. another That's another. That we are the longest, longest running church that ever was. Yeah. That, that, that is that's another one. Uh, but the books one, I sometimes hear it. Uh, I don't know how is it a valid mm. argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's out there. It's out there. If it is valid, right, uh, Mormonism will be more true. <laughs> Mormonism have three extra sets of books. Set. Uh, yeah, mm. so I don't know how many exact books, but they have three extra sets. So yeah, mm. th- that is an argument that I somehow came across. But anyways, um, so let's talk about the Apocrypha. Uh, first of all, we note that the Apocrypha itself, um, the additional book itself in the Catholic Bible and the Orthodox Bible is also different. Uh, this is very annoying, but the Orthodox themselves have slightly more books than the Catholic Bible. Uh, if I'm not wrong, the Catholic Bible have, oh gosh, uh, 12 more? Is it 12 more? I don't remember the exact number, but they have, they have definitely have more. Uh, it includes the Maccabees, if you guys heard of it, Tobit, mm, uh, yeah. Syrah. I, I think we have came across this names before but we have never really read it before if i myself i haven't i haven't really dwelled too much into it yet because i will i'm a bit lazy <laughs> uh but i have read through a few of them maccabees was one of them that i have sort of took to a glance through okay the history of it um the affirmation of the apocrypha itself was only affirmed in the council of trent if um you guys know your church history the council of trent was basically the counter reformation uh that's what most people call it Basically, what happened was that when the Protestant protested, <laughs> when Martin Luther did his things, when uh, Calvin did his things, basically around that period, they, the Catholics came together and said that uh, these are a bunch of idiots. We are not, they are not Catholics. You know, we are not going to treat them as Catholics. So they came together and they come to affirm uh, scriptures. One of the topics that they discussed was was on scriptures itself. And so what they said, what they did was simply to affirm that. Apocryphas are part of scriptures. They are part of the inspired word of God. And this is something that's very interesting because they and the Orthodox are the only group of people that affirmed it. I think Chris will know, right? Mm. The Jews don't have Apocrypha. The Jews have the mm. Tanakh, right? We have the Torah, yeah. we have the uh, Nevim. Is it pronounced as Nevim? Yeah. Uh, Nevim. The, the, the Jews are pretty much in agreement of what should be in the Christians. Tanakh, which is basically our, our Old Testament. Yeah, basically our uh, there's, a slight, there's a slight deviation. For example, uh, for if I'm not wrong, our kings, you know, first and second kings, we split it up. In the first and second Samuel, we split it up. If I'm not wrong, oh, yeah, yeah, up, yeah. they don't split it up. You know, it's it's one chunk yeah. together. Uh, let's not get into why they split it up, but uh, for the Protestant Bible, it's split up. The Tanakh is yeah. they, they they put it under one book. Is it a yeah, big yeah. is it a big issue? I don't think it's a very big issue, right? Yeah. It's, just, <laughs> it, it's just uh oh, it's second king chapter something. Uh, the chapter I guess is 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 less compared to the <laughs> compared to the turnout in that sense um but yeah so yeah uh once they affirmed it and then the protestant 
the, the protestants ourselves raise an eye, we raise our eyebrow already. why do you include it the the jews yeah. themselves didn't affirm it first of all yeah and the early yeah. church father also questioned a bit of the apocrypha also yes but it doesn't it doesn't as you have mentioned before when we come to the the so-called the the measurement of the new testament itself you know whether it's mm-hmm. canon or not we have to look at the consistency yeah the Tanakh itself is not very consistent oh sorry not the Tanakh the Apocrypha itself is not very consistent with the Old Testament and New Testament oh yeah it, it, it isn't <laughs> it, 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 it isn't very consistent um, yeah it isn't very consistent and also the date of writing the Tanakh itself oh sorry not Tanakh why I can't say it's the Tanakh the Apocrypha itself the additional books themselves was written in between the last book of the Old Testament which would be Micah right Micah Mm. Although, I mean, some, and, uh, uh, some historians would say that the official old, last Old Testament book was Second uh, Chronicles because it ends with a genealogy in the yeah. Matthew picture. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's what some of them assert. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, that's how Matthew establishes his credentials that, yes, he's writing an authoritative mm. book. Yeah. 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 yeah, but anyways, so basically, uh, the Apocrypha itself was written in between the two periods right of the old testament and the new testament but and so actually we can see that honestly if you were to read through maccabees itself it actually talks about it gives a his it tries to give a historical account of what happened in between the two periods of the old testament and the new testament itself it's very interesting yeah it, okay so th- it comes to the issue right there whether the history historical records are real or not that's another issue that we do with when we come to the apocrypha um mm. Most of the time, people say it doesn't measure up, not fully, not fully, definitely not fully, but it gives a rough sense of what it might have been going on in the Old Testament and New Testament period. Um, actually, what my focus want to, I want to bring across about the Apocrypha itself is more of the uses of the Apocrypha as Christians in Singapore today. Actually, come to think of it, I missed out one point about the Gnostic Gospel. Chris, do you think that there's any use of the Gnostic Gospel today for Christians? <laughs> Just keep your mind. Personally, I might disagree with you, but I personally don't think there's any use. Um, you burn it? <laughs> yeah. I, I maybe to get a good laugh. Or, <laughs> maybe get a good laugh. Yeah. Just to know how hard some people would try to gain attention to, to say that, yeah, look at my writings, my writings are from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they would concord all kinds of stories. Okay, and, and that process is not old, it's not the last. Mm-hmm. All the way until today's age, new the- people writing new stuff, claiming that God, and you have just as focus stories. <laughs> the gospel of the wife of Jesus in the Davinci. <laughs> and the Davinci yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's all of them. Right, anyway, for yeah. you guys who don't know, uh, you guys should go and you guys shouldn't go and watch the Da Vinci Code. is it's funny. I think from a Christian, it's very funny. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I wouldn't that's, recommend that's, it. Yeah, the document is actually called the Gospel of Jesus's Wife. Yeah, okay, there's a Gnostic Gospel called the Gospel of Jesus's Wife. The Da Vinci Code basically talks about it. Yeah, so, yeah, it talks about Jesus being married. Yeah, yeah so it's it, quite funny. So, so it, 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 to me, the use of the Gnostic Gospels is to have a good laugh. So yeah. Okay, I think I, I think we defer on that point. Uh, sure. <laughs> I, I, if I were to say it, then uh, if I were to put it out, it, it well, definitely is a good laugh in that sense. But uh, 
in a way also help us to see and understands people thinking people's philosophy and people's relig- religion in that sense I, I will view it as how I view the book of Mormon uh, Pearl mm. of Great Price and the whole set basically you use it as a I, I guess you can use it as an academic book to see how what are the what are their beliefs uh, yeah. and you know how might they themselves be thinking about scriptures yeah so anyway going back to the users of Apocrypha Interestingly, Apocrypha itself is not so... It might not be as strange to us as we might think it is. Actually, a lot of our hymns, it, called, it came upon the Midnight Clear, apparently, is taken from one of the Apocrypha books. It's quite interesting. Some of the hymns that we are singing is actually taken from the Apocrypha books. It doesn't really... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asserting that it's scripture. Uh, once again, lay that at foundation. But I say that it has a certain influence on the Christian faith and the Christian religion itself. It has a certain amount of influence in the songs that we sing and even in, I won't say certain doctrines, but certain historical background of certain doctrines. Uh, one example that I gave, one, one example that I will bring up is my own personal use of uh, Maccabees. Uh, once I use second Maccabees to give a rough historical context of, of John, of, of the period of John, of John's writing, uh, John's account of the early ministry of Jesus. Yes, as mentioned before, it might not be historical, you know, it might very well be a lie, but in all lies, there is still a certain amount of truth in it. You know, in a lie, there is a certain amount of truth in it. So, when we when I look at the Apocrypha itself, there is that use there. Uh, do you take it seriously? Uh, no, you shouldn't take it too seriously. But you cannot. I don't. I don't believe that we ourselves as Christians should throw out the apocrypha outright. Um, yeah. Yeah. And even for that, on that point, when we talk about the apocrypha, uh, there's no authority to the church, and by otherwise approve or make use of other humans' writing is basically what, is, what the confession tells us is that the apocrypha is supposed to place on the same level as all human literature and all humans writing so yeah i think i think that's just the point that i want to bring across about the apocrypha itself mm, i won't uh, there's too many books in the apocrypha I, it's not possible for me to go through them yeah. uh, once but the yeah. arguments for the new testament um the new testament issues with the gnostic gospel can almost be simultaneous just copy and place over to the apocrypha itself it's yep. about the same argument. It's, it's almost it's the same argument actually, right? Chris, you will agree. It, yeah, yeah it, it's really it really all boils back down to are they consistent with mm-hmm. what has already been revealed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the testimony of early Christians, mm. as early as the first century, really there's a there were already a small collection mm. of books of the New Testament that were largely agreed on. Yep, yep. But yep. that's that's not what makes the canon canon. canon yes, yes. But but still it, it does show how um, God's sheep respond to his voice. Oh, yes, in, a, yes. in a collective manner. Yeah. Yep, yep. So you have, yeah, so it's always, it, the constant testimony is always the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. You have yes. 13, letters, 13 epistles of Paul, Paul. all agreed on. Um, you have, yeah, uh, most of our books, really, most of our books, only a bit later on, will yeah. you, did the smaller books come in? Yeah, like Jude and Second yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But, about 21 to 22 out of 27 of our New Testament books were really largely already agreed on. Agreed on, yeah. Very, very early. Also. 
it's widely used also yeah 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 yep uh okay i think on that point on that note also um okay never mind another thing that came to my mind was historical writing such as the didake didake is a historical writing of instruction in a sense uh it actually just means teaching it's, it's like an instruction to the church uh it's another issue altogether we will not discuss that here that is for church uh-huh. history that is not for <laughs> it cannot scripture it's not uh-huh. more like it cannot scripture all right anyways uh anything else anything else about uh, yeah I, I think i can add just one thing just mm. one thing yeah yeah uh, go ahead there's an apocryphal book called second maccabees mm. okay yep. and there's a reason why the roman catholic church accepts it into their canon mm-hmm. their own version of the canon mm-hmm. because if you guys know one of the doctrines of the roman catholic church is the doctrine of what they call penance oh, okay, oh what yes penance, <laughs> what penance teaches is that you can pay money like your coin okay pay money to ask god to forgive the sins of uh, for example if you have a dead relative okay, and you fear that your relative might be in so-called hell okay according to their religion okay they believe in this temporal hell and they also believe called purgatory and they believe from second maccabees chapter you can go refer it to yourself second chapter uh, sorry second maccabees chapter 12 verses 45 and 46 Okay, basically it talks about how there are a group of people who, who prayed to God that he would forgive the sins of those who are already dead. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and in essence, it also supports that I can somehow pay a certain sum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can pay a certain sum and God will, will take that sum mm-hmm. to forgive the sins of yeah. those already dead. And my friends, that teaching is nowhere in the scriptures that we have yeah that, that is one point yes yeah yes. so so um, that's just one thing i want to say lah. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. That, that's one of the points um okay consistency consistency and also like if you were to yeah yeah actually chris brought a very good point um the whole roman catholic religion a lot of their i would say the differences between that uh, roman catholic roman Cat- catholicism and uh protestantism a lot of differences is actually because of the way that they are formed the apocrypha you know, a lot of their so-called unusual doctrine, seemingly unusual doctrine to us Protestants, eyes is because they hold on to the apocrypha. So, uh, is there a great impact? Yes, there is a great impact. Do not like look down on it. Do not say that oh, I can just add in another book. It doesn't really matter. So, yeah, I think that's what. Thank, thank you, thank you, Chris, for that. For that. Uh, I think I will, we'll end us off here. But I think as we end us, as we end, um, one thing for us to for us, uh, you know, for all of us as Christians, as Protestants, to really think deeper about the scriptures, deeper about more of the 66 books. Many of us just assume that, hey, that guy on the pulpit believes that the 66 books are supposed to be the 66 books. does not think much more about it. He does not inquire more about it and does not really do his due duty to defend it, in that sense, because he doesn't really see the need to defend it. And so we just don't care, we just follow him. But eventually, I think someday this issue in our own lives will arise up. You know, if someone approach us and tell us about a movie, Da Vinci Code, <laughs> sometimes some people might fall for it and be like, did Jesus really have a wife? Is, is our scripture lying to us or hiding something from us that we are supposed to know or we are, supposed to, we are meant to know but we do not know? So yeah, I think it, it does affect our faith. 
(uh) one way or another and it does affect our conversation with people (uh) one way or another so I think my encouragement to all of us is that you know if you have the chance I would encourage you guys to read through the apocrypha not really the gnostic gospels but apocrypha is (uh) it will be helpful for you because one of the biggest religion right now out there (um) uses the apocrypha and affirms the apocrypha so I think it's important to know what they believe also so yeah I think that's it for us today Um, anything else? yeah um, just some final words from me yes Uh, I think it's really so important to study this topic Mm. yeah I think a lot of us let's be honest a lot of us are too um, too poor Uh, when we see this topic we we might think it's very dry Mm. we might think it's very boring Okay, we might we might think that we have better things to do or better topics to study, but just just speaking from my experience as I as I researched on this topic, it's really that it led me such a greater appreciation of really what God has done in human history, of how God is sovereign and how God specifically decrees which books He has He wants to reveal to His church, and I think we can thank God that the six books that we have are what God wants us to know about mm-hmm. himself. And it's great. I, I think even having the Bible in our hands, final and complete, is a testimony of God's genius. Okay? Uh, of God's genius. Okay? Yeah. Uh, and I really hope that today's episode have, has helped us to appreciate that more, as, as yeah. it has helped me to appreciate that more. I think we all have gained quite a lot from, from, from it. Uh, anyways, uh... If you guys want to do more research, highly encourage. Lee Gunya has a wonderful series on it. Uh, yeah. It's called a New Testament Canon, is it? Yeah, is it? yeah New, Testament New Testament Canon by Michael Kruger. Yes, by Michael Kruger. So please encourage all of you to go and listen to it. Uh, if you guys want to find out more about Apocrypha itself, just go online and search it. You guys can find it. Uh, you guys can go and find it. Just search Apocrypha, uh, Catholics, Catholic Bible, and you guys can find it all over the internet. Alright, that's it from us today. David is sadly not here to do the nice music. <laughs> so okay, I, it's, lost. it's okay, it's it's yeah, it's lost, not our loss. Anyway, goodbye and enjoy your day ahead. See ya.